He said, I just hired this kid who just got out of college. He's gone down to this local yard and he has just worked his way through college, picking parts off and selling them on eBay. And I thought, well, wow, that's a really cool idea. Hey everyone, you're listening to episode seven of Can't Heat, a podcast highlighting makers and entrepreneurs in the vintage clothing world. I'm Michael Slater, a vintage reseller and content creator based in DFW, Texas. Today's guest is not a clothing vendor, but he is an online reseller. Joel Slater is a school principal in Campbell County, Virginia, and in his spare time, he sells used auto parts on eBay. He's also my dad. So when my parents were here in town several weeks ago, we decided to record our conversation for the show. We talk about growing up thrifty, him in upstate New York, then me in Florida and Georgia, starting our family eBay account 20 years ago, and the process of sourcing auto parts from salvage yards and then flipping them online. This was a super fun conversation with my pops, so I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. What was it like growing up in a large family? Did you learn how to be resourceful? Well, everything that came to us came through resources of one way or another. I remember um, my dad was really good at finding the cheapest groceries and bringing them home. One time we had had a couple of cases of canned food that were unmarked. I don't know how he bought those. He probably got them for free. I don't know, but he brought them back and... And all the labels were off these cans, so we had cases of canned food that had no labels on them. And I was always hoping for the pork and beans, you know. <laughs> so sometimes you'd open them up and you'd get green beans and you'd be like, oh, man. But that was just one one thing that showed, you know, as we were growing up. It was pretty tight in a house of, you know, eight kids in the family. And, um, you know, my dad worked. My mom was a school teacher slash bus driver slash Avon lady slash everything else she did. So, yeah, I was just thinking back on like our upbringing, me and me and Matthew and Andrew, my two brothers. And, you know, we we had a lot of access to things, but we also, you know, we still would like to go to garage sales and thrift stores and stuff, buy things from Craigslist every now and then. So it's kind of cool that that thriftiness kind of gets passed down. Well, yeah, I think it's I think it's true in families, especially when your parents, my parents grew up in the Great Depression, or my dad did anyway. He lived through that. And I know your mom's grandparents grew up in the Great Depression too. So they were always very thrifty and frugal, always um, stockpiling food and things like that. So we we just came, I mean, we came by the thrifting, honestly, you know. Yeah, out of necessity rather than it being something that's cool, which is kind of how it is now. Right. Well, if we had clothes, there were there were a few ways we got clothes when we were kids. And mom made, uh, you know, she was a seamstress as well. So she made a lot of our clothes. If, if you go back to our elementary days, when we were in second and third grade, and our school pictures were clothes that my mom actually made out of patterns that she, you know, she'd buy the material at the sewing center and she'd, she'd put all these clothes together. She had a sewing room upstairs. And, you know, we got that. And then we, I remember we had the tough skin jeans from 
seers and right and they had these really thick patches in the knees and so she'd buy one and, and the thing was if they ever wore out you can bring them back and get a brand new pair so they just got passed oh, down cool. from you know from brother to brother to brother till they got to me and then i'd wear them out so bad that sears probably wouldn't take them back because my mom always said that i was hard on clothes so yeah i think the culture has shifted a lot too in recent decades kind of away from repairing what you have and valuing you know passing things on to to the next siblings and everything well yeah and i was thinking about that the other day i was watching a a tiktok or something but there was a a cobbler actually repairing a pair of boots and um and and now it, it became of he he was repairing these boots because there were supply chain issues and and the the guy right. couldn't he couldn't find the boots new so he took them to this shoe repair shop and the guy was actually showing how he how he resold these shoes but i remember not too long ago i mean when you were a kid certainly you know i would take my shoes down and i would get them resold instead of going out and buy a new pair and then you know it got to be where you know they got old you just take them to the goodwill and and buy a new pair yeah and you were always the family sewer in our family too yeah so i repaired you know in my my job too as a school principal i still repair clothes kids will rip their pants and something and they'll bring them to me and i'll i'll sew them up i have my sewing kit in my bag and and pull it out every once in a while to, but i'm not that good at it i just um you know i can, I can get you by but i can't you know you know, yeah never a permanent deal another thing i wanted to ask you about was you always used to tell us how you there was a time i guess in high school when you worked like a bunch of different jobs at once so what was that like? What did you learn from that? Well, in our house, you had to work. And, and I, I've had a job since I was um, 10 years old. We, we, in our family, we grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and we still had paper routes. As a matter of fact, there were two paper routes, the morning paper and the afternoon paper. And when you were, when you were about 10, you could start delivering the afternoon paper, which was just basically a daily sales sheet. And it had the obituaries in it for the little town that we grew up in. But then there was a, there was a larger town. Um, to the south of us, and that had the the morning paper, and my brothers would deliver that. That one you had to be twelve, so I never could deliver that one until you know, till right before we we moved away when I, when I was twelve. But um, yeah, so we've had you know we we all because we had such a large family, we were always working multiple jobs, and you know my dad of course was um, you know a very religious man and. and he would say, you know, he'd quote the Bible, and all labor, there's profit. So we had a lot of labor because we needed a lot of profit, you know. And, and we <laughs> had, funny. like I said, my mom sold Avon on top of all the other things she did. Um, my my brothers all had paper routes. We had the town covered with paper routes and Slater boys doing, doing <laughs> the paper routes. And then, you know, it was, you know, when we, after we moved to Florida, it was cutting grass. You know, we cut every lawn on the street and um, shoveling snow up in New York while we lived up there. We would just do whatever it took you know, to get, to get that money. But that money always came back. And my dad had a, he had a formula for us. He said, um, you know, you had to save 30%. You had to, um, give 30% to dad for the house, for the running of the house. That was kind of like our rent. And then you could, um, you could spend 30%, but then you had to give 10% to the church. So that was the formula that we grew up with. And, um, and it, it served us well, you know, to, to be able to learn to budget early on in our lives. Yeah. So kind of, going forward when i was growing up like i said we kind of had that thrifty spirit of kind of going to you know garage sales and stuff and especially as we got older we kind of got into that more and more so i remember 
in 2003, the Bucks won the Super Bowl. Yes, they did. And you had the hat that, where did you buy that hat? I can't remember the name of the sporting goods store, but I walked in one night and um, the hat that was so hot was not the Super Bowl hat. It was the NFC Conference Championship. I think they had won that before earlier on when the Bucks were first getting started. They had like one good season, but they won this. And then, you know, of course, two weeks later, they're winning the Super Bowl. So that hat became collectible because they didn't make a lot of them. And I just happened to be in the store and picked it up. I think it was, I don't know, eight or nine dollars at the time. But um, it was one that was really, really hot all of a sudden. Yeah. So then I remember, did you sell it? How did you sell it? Honestly, Michael, I think I put an ad in the paper. I think it was back when classified ads were big. I remember I we picked up a Tickle Me Elmo one year, too, mm-hmm. when that was the big craze. The first Tickle Me Elmo came out, and I think we were in a maybe a Target or Toys R Us or something, and we picked up this, and I think we picked it up for Matthew for Christmas, and then all of a sudden it became like yeah. really hot, and I remember putting an ad in the St. Petersburg Times and selling that thing, and that thing paid for Christmas that year. So I remember you telling me that you had sold the hat and I think did you sell it for like $300? I don't know that it was that much. A couple um, hundred bucks or something. A couple hundred maybe, yeah. And then I it was remember a lot of money. this may or may not be the case, but I remember you put the money into a suit and you were like, "Oh, this is enough to buy a nice suit." And for me that was kind of like a catalyst moment of like, "Oh, you can buy something and then resell it if it goes up in value and then reinvest that money back into something else that you need." So I don't know. I just always think of that story. And coincidentally, that was around the same time that you started our eBay account, which you still sell on and we still kind of share to this day. So um, do you remember like starting the account? I don't remember starting it. I remember it was sometime right after we made the move to the Atlanta area. And I think we were just buying stuff for the house back then in, in 2003. I mean, I think I might have had a flip phone, but we certainly didn't have, you know, the smartphones, the smartphones. So every little town had your little storefront eBay place that you would go and you would, you know, sell it on eBay. I think you had a franchise at some point, but you'd take your items in and then they would, you know, they take because you had to have a little multi-pixel camera, you know, digital camera and you take the picture and then it, then it was put it on the memory stick, put it in your computer, upload it. It wasn't easy like it is now. Yeah, not. And now I now I look at my, you know, my picture feed, and it's just full of, you know, to find a picture of my grandson, I have to scroll through picture of auto parts. Right, you know, right. To get to the point to see, you know, Grayson. So. Yeah, and I, I remember, like, I got pretty into eBay sometime after that, and I was usually just buying Legos. <laughs> Legos that had uh, been discontinued. Legos and Coke bottles. Yeah. We got yeah. a lot of Coke bottles. And coins. Coins. I coins too. Yeah. And I remember I did a, like we had to do like the 4-H project. I think it was in fifth grade. And I like did an eBay, like how to buy on eBay and like did a binder and like printed out my eBay purchases. And um, it's just funny looking back on that because now that's like our hobby and our side hustle. So I just remember um, buying a lot back in those early days of eBay. Not really selling too much, I don't think. Do you remember the first negative feedback we got on eBay? I don't, off the top of my head. <laughs> you, you sold a coin on eBay, <laughs> and 
Like as a fifth grader or something? Prob- probably, <laughs> but the guy didn't like the way you graded it. And he, yeah. he, the feedback came back negative. I think we probably only had 10 positive feedbacks, <laughs> one negative. That's so we were at funny. like 90% because he didn't like the grade. He said you misgraded it or something. I don't know. I, I'm sure I did. I mean, I was a kid. And that's an interesting market because it's it's a subjective thing. You know, like there's certain guidelines with grading, but um, even like what's big with grading now is like you can grade Pokemon cards and trading cards and even VHS tapes and the companies that do it have standards. But to this day, there's still beef about people getting their grades back and not agreeing with the grade. And then there's discrepancies between the grading companies about, well, if I sent this to this grading company, they would have given me a a 10 and you gave me a 9.5 or whatever. So it's interesting how that's still, <laughs> yeah, that that's is. still kind of a thing. It's still subjective. Like, but again, I was a kid and probably, <laughs> probably graded it a little higher than it should have been. Cause I just didn't know. But, uh, yeah, so I used to buy and sell coins a little bit, but like I said, we still use that account and you sell a lot on there. So tell me about what you sell these days. I think I, I'm aiming for 500 items at a given time, 500 listings, and probably 450 of them are auto parts. I sell a lot of um, your brother's dead pile because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he likes to pick, but he doesn't like to uh, he doesn't like to list and sell. So, right. Um, unless he has a grail piece, but he leaves big old bags of trash bags full of t-shirts. So I'll sell some of that um, because he's got a better eye than it. Then I, I don't have an eye for vintage. I wish I did, but I don't. And I keep, I, I try to have you guys teach me about it, but it's just something I don't have, which is fine. But I, I do auto parts. And so I, um, basically I go and I'll, um, I'll go into the little pick and save salvage lots, self-service salvage lots. I'll pick auto parts that I think I can sell and I'll list them on eBay and doing pretty, pretty good. What like gave you the idea to do this? Well, if you remember, you know, you talk about us going into, you know, thrifting when we were, you know, we did flea markets and we did, we did the pawn shops and things like that to buy musical instruments. Well, I remember, you know, we used to fix up your cars too, because your cars, we, we never could afford a lot. So I think it was your, didn't you have a 98 Honda Accord one time Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it needed a part. And so we went into, um, I think, I think we're in Atlanta at the time. And we went into one of the one of the parts places, one of these salvage yards um, down in Atlanta with Matthew. And I remember we were going, and we were, we also had a Ranger, the Ford Ranger. Yeah. And we were looking for parts for that Ford Ranger. And I remember we were looking for parts for that Honda, and we just started picking parts. So we, and I just found it a fascinating place, you know, because you see all these old cars, you know, cars that I used to drive when I was a kid would be there, and I could, rem- you know, it's kind of like a walk down memory lane. And then you're, you know, you see these, you see really cool cars that you used to think, wow, this is, you know, here's a firebird. You know, I, I used to want one of these when I was a kid and here now it is in the junkyard at the end of its life. And, you know, so, you know, we would pick parts off them for our own personal use. And then, um, you had an accident a couple of years ago and I was trying to help, help you replace your car. And so I went to, in Virginia there near where we live, I went into a car dealership and I met this guy and we were talking about this. It was actually a Honda Pilot, and I was looking at it for you. I was thinking this will be a nice, safe car for the kids. And as I was talking to the guy, I said, man, these, these seats are in really good condition. And he said, yeah. He said, I just went down to the um, you know, the pick and save in, in Lynchburg here, and, and 
got these out of this Honda Pilot. And I said, wow, that's cool. He said, yeah, I didn't pay pay too much for them, and that's why I can sell you this car, because the, the previous seats were really bad, and these seats are in really good condition. Mm. And I thought, well, wow, that's great. That's a good idea. And I said, do you go there often? He said, well, no. He said, I just hired this kid who just got out of college, and he's going to sell cars for me. He's gone down to this local yard, and he has just worked his way through college picking parts off and selling them on eBay. And I thought, well, wow, that's a really cool idea. And so that next Saturday, I set aside about $300, and I went down and I started picking some parts. And that was about maybe two and a half years ago. And I started just I started with um, fuel filler caps, really. And I think I've only sold two of those. I think I picked <laughs> probably 10 that day. I probably still have only sold two. But yeah. that's the one thing that you see that people are missing, you know, or maybe a mirror. And so I started with mirrors and, and fuel filler parts and sold a few. But then I started working on, you know, maybe interior parts and things. And, and you just kind of look at eBay and the comps and what's selling. And you pick that. And, and you know, we, we do we do pretty well with it. I mean, it, it keeps me busy. It's a, it's a Saturday morning thing where I can get up and go out and spend some time out and, you know, in nature, if a salvage yard can be nature, <laughs> but it's cold there. It's hot there. And, um, your mom and I will go down and we'll go to a city and she'll go to the mall and I'll go pick for a while and then we'll get meet back up for dinner time. And yeah. so it's just kind of a, it's something that gets me outside and it's a hobby that I, you know, that I can turn into some cash. So what's better than that? Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's kind of like there's a lot of parallels to what we do with clothing cuz like you said when you first started out, you were picking 10 <laughs> fuel caps and you kind of have to just live and learn and like cut your teeth a little bit and figure out what sells and what doesn't and like you said looking at comps um helps a lot to kind of see what what there's demand for and sometimes you buy something and there's a hundred listed and they're all listed high, but there's no solds, which means right. the market is kind of flooded on that one item and you got to not pick it up next time, I guess. But um, that's how you learn. And I think in our community, there are a lot of folks that kind of want to skip the legwork and just like automatically just start by knowing everything that there is to, to know. And like, I just try to remind people that are uh, just starting out, like, just got to do it. (laughs) Like you just got to buy stuff and sell stuff. Like that's, that's really the only way (laughs) to figure it out. Like you can't always determine the value of every piece you pick up. Sometimes you just have to list it and maybe you list it too low and you learn a lesson and then maybe you list it too high and you have to come down on the price. But like the only way to learn is just by experience really. Yeah, and that is that is true. I mean, there's always that one piece that you think you see and you you think, wow, this is going to be it. But, you know, I, I remember picking off the first Mercedes I ever picked off, and I thought, wow, here's a high-end car. These parts are going to fly, and they're going to bring big money, and I still have those parts. Really, for me, what the what sells is the cars that are, have longevity. You know, those cars that are going to hit two or 300,000 miles, they tend to be Toyotas and, and Hondas. But when you find those, you know, and especially SUV parts, people keep those around a long time. So as they keep their cars on the road, it doesn't matter the quality. Sooner or later, that part's going to wear out and yeah, and they're going to go looking for that part. And um, the only problem with that is, is the, the more mass produced something is, there's a lot more product of that online. Right, so, right. So you're not the only 
uh, person with that part, maybe, but right, not the only person. But if I can, if I can get it to him faster than anybody else, and if I can get it to him cheaper than anybody else, and so yeah. I usually, I'm usually lower than just about anybody else, unless I've listed something and somebody came in and undercut it. Yeah, that's a good word too for people like, like you said, just the shipping time and the, <laughs> the pricing. Those were two of the things that I did early on that I think helped a lot was just like, if I see a shirt selling on eBay for 25, like I'm going to put it up for 17, you know, and just like sell it quick. And then the second they pay, like I'm packing it up, it's going first class and it's going to get there, you know, in two days if they're not on the other side of the country or whatever. Right. (laughs) And I think that that kind of shows through and people, people appreciate that and it kind of goes a long way. You know? Well, our, our dinner time is definitely after six o'clock now because, <laughs> you know, I get home at, you know, I'll get home at five o'clock and I've got a real short window to take, you know, the four or five things that I sold that day and get them to the post office by six o'clock so that they can ship out. And I have it timed down to just the, you know, if I leave at 551, I can get to the post <laughs> office in time to beat that six o'clock deadline, you know, yeah. get those things out. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how we are too. We try to ship quickly and have good prices. I think those are just two really simple things that you can do right away to kind of make your business stand out if you can't do other things. So we've kind of talked about the challenges of sourcing the parts, but like, what are the other challenges that you see with this market? Well, for, for auto parts, there's no Macari. There's no, what's that pop shop or Depop. Depop. Yeah. Yeah, There's not, there's none of that. I mean, I guess if I were selling vintage parts, I could go on and I could, I could have an Instagram account that, that showed (laughs) these parts. Yeah. (laughs) And I have, I have tried that a little bit with, you know, I, I work a lot in Toyota because that's basically what I know and and what I've always driven. So, you know, I've gone onto some of the enthusiast sites and listed parts every once in a while, you know, especially if I have a Celica or something that I know that they're going to mod out or something, but it just hasn't, you know, I don't have a following and it, it would take a lot to get that going, I think. So I, I think the biggest challenge for me is, you know, I watch you and Aaron do some of the things you do with the lives and things like that. And I think, wow, that's great. I wish I could do something like that, Yeah. but I'll never have that opportunity. So I'm really a slave to um, eBay and eBay's terms and conditions, right. and, you know, 13%, you know, <laughs> fees and, and all of that. Yeah. It is tough because you just kind of rely on them for the marketing of it because like we have a very social market where we can push things through on Instagram and all the different selling apps. But in your case, you just kind of have to like do the promoted listings and, right, you know, kind of count on that to push your items out. What do you see like for the future of your business? Well, I think as long as I have the help to go out and pick, you know, I can keep the business going. It, it's, it's fun for me. I still look forward to getting up our local yards. We have two local yards you know, within an hour of the house, they do um, half price Saturdays and all you can carry sales. So I can go out and I can source a lot of, a lot of parts on a half price day. You know, we, I deal in, in wheelbarrows full because, you know, you, you take your wheelbarrow, you throw your, you know, tools in there, you go out, you fill the wheelbarrow, you bring it back in. And, um, you know, on if it's not a half price day, you're hoping that the guy at the register we have one who's just real heavy. And if I were running one of those um, salvage yards, I would love to have him because he doesn't let a wire get through or a screw get through without charging for it. Mm. But, um, <laughs> you know, so that's a challenge. But um, so you kind of time it so that you get the other person, you know. And there are a lot of the salvage yards themselves that are doing it now. Of course, most of them, if they have a newer car, they're going to part that out themselves and, and 
and use that. So it's the, you know, it's either the really totaled cars that are newer or the seven to 10 year old, seven to 15 year old cars that are out there on the salvage yard. So there's still a pretty good market for those. But, um, you know, if we see a total car and only one side of it's total, I can pull off the other side and I can sell a lot of parts. Right, right. We kind of have that, that same double-edged sword, like you're talking about the salvage yards Mm -hmm. getting into the business too. Like, obviously they're already doing it, but at a lower price, but then they kind of see the potential in the online thing. And like, we've seen that with shopgoodwill.com and and the, the thrifts have wised up a lot to it. And it's kind of a cyclical thing because as the market grows and things get more popular, the original owners of the product start to wise up and Right. And they see the trends and then they charge you more. <laughs> but it, it's tough because you want the market to grow, but you also don't want it to grow so big that people catch on and then you can't source anything. So Right. And there's there's one national chain that runs yards in, all over the nation. And they know when I'm coming in and I'm going to this specific vehicle and buying every single part that I can off that and I'm bringing it up, they know it's not for my personal vehicle. So they <laughs> yeah, know I'm a yeah. picker. And they know that I'm their competition because I'm going to see that same exact part that they've pulled and they, they've listed on eBay and I'm going to undercut them and they know it. So they're going to get me on the front end. There's this old saying in the car business that you don't make the money when you sell the car, you make the money when you buy the car, you know, and I have a, I have a little bit of background in the, in car sales as well. And I, I remember my boss, the dealer, he would go and, and he had a guy who would go to the auctions for him and and sometimes he'd let a really good car go for for a hundred dollars. You know the difference a hundred dollars between what you know. We're cutting the bid at this point. And we're not going any further. But I'd look at the car and I go, man, that's a great car. You know, you could really sell that for a lot. And he says, you know, you don't make that money when you sell the car. You make the money when you buy the car. So you have mm. to buy low, sell high, of course. And yeah, that's interesting. That's applicable to what we do too, for sure. So these are kind of the rapid fire questions that I do with everybody. And I've, of course, kind of modified them for, for your purposes. But in our business, we talk about having a death pile. What does it look like for you to have like a death pile of auto parts? Well, it's kind of like some of your sourcing, you know, some people who don't do children's vintage like you do, they give you their, their vintage. Yeah. And, and I have people like that too. They know that I do this. And, and so they'll bring me a box of parts and they'll give it to me. And I don't have any personal connection to that because yeah, I didn't, didn't pick, pick it. it up. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't pick it. I didn't, I haven't done any of the comps on it. So I'll get this box of parts and that, that, that's really generally what my dead file will be. Or if I have three or four Saturdays in a row where I've, where I've picked a lot and I've just got this big pile of stuff and you just can't get through it. And then you go to the next sale and you get, you get grail stuff and you want to list that first because that's going to sell and, and make the money. And so, you know, I, I, I ended up having COVID for three days and I couldn't go to work. So I got through my dead pile pretty, pretty (laughs) much. I still have some stuff that, you know, that's just sitting there. But for the most part, it's just like anybody else's dead pile. It's there and, and, you know, it it can be an albatross. You know, you sit there and you look at it and I just don't feel like listening tonight, you know. And if I did, I could make money on it. But, you know. It happens to everybody. Yeah. What's your favorite part that you've ever sold? Man, I got, I was the first one to this 2007 Toyota Camry and I... You know, I'm, I'm walking around this car and, and it was like a Thursday morning. I can't remember why I was off school, but I, I had this day and I was, I was, it was, I think it was in North Carolina or something. And I was out there and I, I lifted the lid on this car, you know, the, the hood on the car and I'm looking through the engine and I usually, I just pick clean parts. I don't, I don't have any place to store a whole bunch of under the hood 
type parts that might be greasy and things like that. But I found this on this hybrid car, this anti-lock brake pump, and I bought it for $40 and it sold for close to 600. And that was just a, that was a grail piece. That's so a good feeling. <laughs> I, will, I will look for that part every single time, but there aren't that many out there. So when you yeah. find them. Yeah. Those, those types of sales are few and far between, but right. when they hit, they sure hit. <laughs> yeah. It feels good. What's one staple part that you're always on the lookout for? There's one car, I guess, that I look for a lot. And, and I think because I know that car, you know, you're, you're driving the family car that you grew up in, yeah. you know, it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of passed down to you now, but you know, it's a, that first generation Toyota Sequoia, man, if I can find one of those and I will drive a hundred miles to find one, because if I can find one and I can be one of the first ones there, I can make a thousand dollars off a car because I know the parts, I know how to pull them. I'm quick at it. And, um, if I can find a lot with two or three of those, then, then man, that'll make my day, make my week, make my month. How do you kind of know where certain cars are going? Well, this is interesting. And I often wondered how this would translate to your business, but I, I have our local yard. I've made really good friends and, and, and the way it happened was totally by mistake. Generally, you know, I'm not that well known and I don't strive to be well known by people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if they didn't know I was a picker, that wouldn't be a bad thing. But one day I went down for a special part that a customer wanted and I was picking this part and I, it was like right near five o'clock. They want to close. I'm in and out. And so I ran in to get this part and I picked it off the car and I didn't realize that I picked another part and I just thrown it in the wheelbarrow, but it ended up in my bag. Uh, yeah. And so as I'm leaving, I'm, I paid for the one part. And the guy goes, well, can I check your bag? Which is normal, you know, check your toolbox and, and make sure you're not taking out anything that you're not paying for. And I pulled up my bag and opened it confidently. And I saw that there was a part <laughs> in there. And I was just, I mean, I was just so, oh, man, I felt like I was a shoplifter, you know, and I'd been caught red handed and, and they were really nice about it. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. I paid for the part. That wasn't the problem paying for the part, but I felt so bad about it. And so the next day, I mean, I, I sat there and I, I could not sleep that night. I mean, I just, you know, to, to have stolen something or to try to steal something to me was just, I mean, it was a front to my character. And, and so I wanted to make it up to the people. So I went, I went that night and I, I went and got some cash out of the bank and I went down and I taped to the um, door basically, and I'm sorry, no. And, and I put some cash in there. I said, please buy the crew lunch. The manager called me. Her name's Heather, and she's she's become you know a pretty good friend now. So since then, when they have a half price day, I know those guys are so busy they don't get a chance to go out to get lunch. So I just make it one of my business expenses on a half price day. I'll go and I'll buy lunch for the crew, and I'll bring it in, and they're always so appreciative. So I've really gotten a good good relationship with them now, and it, it came through something that for me was just traumatic. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, it's traumatic for me, but it, it what it did was I got to know them really well. So now they'll let me know. They'll let me know, and especially they know what I like, they know what I pick, and if they have like a, a Toyota or a Lexus SUV coming, you know, they'll they'll tell me. they say, hey, man, we got this car, we're going to put it out, and she'll text me, and she'll say, hey, Joel, we just put this, uh, you know, we put this Sequoia out, we put this RX350 out, you know, you want to come by, we've got a new Highlander out there, and so she knows that's what I pick from mostly, and so I'll get, I'll try to get there, you know, after work one day or something, and I'll get the best parts off it, and um so that that's helpful, you know, that you can have a relationship with people. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it definitely translates to our business because I think if you're trying to buy things from people, I mean, it's kind of a no brainer to build relationships and help them out, pay it forward. You know, I think for us, like it'd be 
you know, maybe you find an original owner of a bunch of t-shirts, like how can you kind of add value to their life and not just like Mm -hmm. get something from them, but what can you offer to help them out? I think that's a lesson that I had to learn, you know, in our field, there's a lot of people that are doing off the back challenges where they Mm -hmm. see someone, typically someone who is not well off and is wearing a old t-shirt that happens to be valuable, but they don't know it's valuable. And then you see people buying shirts for five bucks from a homeless person and then selling them for 500. And it's like, you can make some money doing that, but isn't there maybe a better way to do it that would kind of pass some of that value onto them and, and respect that person. And so I've seen a lot of cool ways that people are doing things like that in a better way to kind of pay people well for what they have. You know, even if you're still making money on top, like you can still find a fair price to pay somebody for something that they might not know is super valuable. Well, you talk a lot on your podcast and and we've had lots of conversations about sustainability. I've never been one of those tree uh, huggers. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that. (laughs) I'm a little bit more conservative than, than you are. Yeah. But I've always believed in conservation. You know, and that's one of the, I think, one of the benefits of the business. We have one one vendor, one yard that lists the amount of pounds of salvage that they do in plastic. Uh-huh. And every piece that I can sell is one less piece that's going into a landfill. And it's that repurposing and giving it a second life. Yeah. And, and you know, the fact that I use used boxes. I mean, I have, I have shipped in shoe boxes and Oreo boxes and just about any kind of box you can find. Because, you know, I want to ship light and I want to ship green you know yeah yeah and so i I think it's it's not just giving back to the people that we do business with but it's also being responsible and conserving and that sustainability of things yeah is important i've talked about it a lot on here but i think for me there's plenty of areas where i'm not sustainable with my life but for me like being in this business has been one small area that i can focus on where I'm like starting new habits. Before we did this business, we weren't shipping tons of packages every week. Now we are. So it's like, oh, we can buy compostable mailers that decompose more quickly over time and we can reuse boxes that we already have in our house and not go to Walmart and buy new ones. And there's just different things that you start to learn. So I think that's a good piece of advice for anyone who's doing this is like, you don't have to be perfect, but there's little areas that you can kind of you're building this new thing. So why not build it well and kind of, like you said, implement those like green practices. It's pretty easy when you're starting out to do that because there's no bad habits yet, you know? Right. And I, I just like the fact that that in my business, I'm helping people, you know, it might be a, you know, a door lock, a lock that's not working, a power window motor, their, their window's not going up or they, you know, some of the parts I sell, their car cannot run without those parts. And so if I can get it to them fast, you know, they can get their mechanic to slap it on. They're saving a lot of money. So I, I think a lot about the the single moms out there. Yeah. You know, the the people who, who are living just near poverty. And if I can sell it at a good price and get it to them quickly, and, and they're going to pay, you know, a quarter of what they're going to pay if they go to the dealership for sure. You know, if we can, if we can help people, it's all about giving back. And then the other part of it is if we can take what we do have, you know, this is um, disposable income for us. And if we can take that and put that into causes that we care about and share it with people that we care for, I think it's a win-win for everybody. And and so out of a hobby can come something that is, is beneficial, not just for our earth, but also for our community. Yeah, that's all really great advice for anybody that's 
trying to do what we do with reselling. Um, Go ahead. You know you want to tell the diaper story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's let's tell the diaper story. So yesterday you were at an estate sale and you texted me to ask if there was anything that we wanted you to pick up. And I had already been to the estate sale a few days prior. So I asked you to look and see if they had vintage diapers. <laughs> so I called Aaron. And I said, Aaron, they have these diapers here. Like, there's big box of 256 stage two diapers, and, I, and I'm I'm as serious as heart attack. Aaron, you know, I want to buy these diapers for the baby, and how long will the baby be in you know in these diapers? And I'm I'm doing the calculations. I'm thinking, okay, how many a day is the baby going to need? And and are these too many diapers for the time <laughs> that this little growing baby is going to be in, you know, 12 to 18 months or whatever they are? And I'm thinking, wow, this is a great deal because I ran some comps and I'm just going to, to walmart.com and I'm looking up that 120 diapers are selling for 63 bucks. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at this $27 box of diapers thing and this is a great deal. I'm going to get these for this grandkid. And so then Aaron hands the phone to me and says, uh, talk to your dad. And I'm like, uh, okay, what? <laughs> and then I said, well, dad, I'm asking about the diapers because I want to resell them. And I thought you were punking me. <laughs> I really did. So then long story short, uh, later we get home and the diapers are in the living room and we're talking about reselling the diapers. So I look up the comps on the diapers oh, and <laughs> Dad is blown away by the uh, prices that we're seeing. <laughs> it, it's like unbelievable. So there's vintage diapers sold on eBay for hundreds of dollars. So dad sees the diapers selling for hundreds of dollars. And he says, what is this just collectors that want the cartoon characters on the diapers? Like, what is this all about? And then Aaron <laughs> pipes up and says, well, I think there's another reason for why this could be. And so we kind of explain why we think vintage diapers are selling And when for it so much. dawns on me, I have this post-traumatic face flush red <laughs> because I had been, these, these diapers were upstairs in this huge mansion of a house that had these long, long steps coming down to the foyer where they were checking people out. And I'm carrying this big box of diapers down the stairs to buy them and I don't know what those people there were thinking but um, you told me that there is a fetish market for vintage diapers and I'm sitting there thinking okay this is not good and I'm so embarrassed right now you can tell this story but it's so funny <laughs> and then what did you say you said all you had to say was fetish and I would have known what you were talking yeah. about yeah, and then I probably would have left the diapers upstairs. <laughs> but the comps are ridiculous on them. Yes, that's for sure. Yeah. They, they definitely are. But I, I enjoy, um, I enjoy picking for you guys. I like you know going in Goodwill and looking for the plushes because I know you guys sell those. And and so anytime I'm in a Goodwill or something, I'll I'll text Erin or something and say, you know, is this any good? Is this any good? And usually she tells me no because I like I said I have no eye for it. <laughs> but um, generally I know that. Yeah, I, can, I know. We appreciate you doing that. It's it's helpful to have people out there looking because there's stuff everywhere and we can't. No one can get to all of it. So, <laughs> do you have any other final thoughts or words of wisdom? Well, Michael, I just you you've talked to so many 
cool people on on this podcast and and you do this so well i mean this is just such a gifting for you your mom and i talk about it all the time how <laughs> how we feel like you've just done such a great job with it and and so we we don't ever miss an episode so i'd encourage all your listeners to just share and and because this is a great thing you're doing and just the fact that you know we are so proud of you we're so proud of you and aaron and we love you guys and you gave us this great little grandson and <laughs> and a and a grand dog and we're just so <laughs> proud of you and uh, we love you and we're, we love spending time with you yeah love you too Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Canned Heat. I listen to a lot of different podcasts on YouTube, so if you're like me and do the same, don't forget that every episode of Canned Heat is available there, in addition to all the podcast apps. You can find our channel by searching Canned Heat Podcast. Subscribe while you're there so you don't miss an episode. As a matter of fact, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast and it would help us out even more if you could write us a short review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to those of you who have done that. It's always super encouraging to me to read those reviews whenever I open the app. As always, if you know someone who is doing big things in the realm of vintage and you think they would make a good guest for the show, feel free to shoot me a DM at Slater Thrifts or at Can't Heat Pod on Instagram. Well, that's all I got for now. Don't forget to wash cold and hang dry.